Good evening, folks. I'm here again with the great Keith Preston of Attack the System. How are things going with you, Keith? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me back on your program. All right. Let's talk about the neoconservatives. They're obviously a topic of discussion in a lot of circles, especially on like the America First right these days. And even you could go back to the Bush era where neocons were talked a lot about by mainstream leftists, progressives, and all of those groups in the leftist milieu, the broader left liberal milieu. Now, the neocons have receded in influence in certain respects, but they're still slithering around the halls of Congress, think tanks, and legacy media, among other venues. Before we talk about the neocon's current influence, could you define what constitutes a neocon and go into their overall origins? Yeah, uh, that history is really interesting, and it's also really complicated. The narrowest definition of a neocon, uh, and of course by neocon we mean neoconservative, uh, would be someone that was part of the movement that developed in the late 60s and early 70s um, uh, under the leadership of figures like Irving Kristol and Norman Podhoretz. Uh, Norman Podhoretz, um, he's very old now, but he was the editor of Commentary Magazine for decades. Uh, the late Irving Kristol uh, was the editor of The National Interest and some other publications like that. Uh, and they were part of a circle of people that used to be called the New York intellectuals or the Lower East Side uh, intellectuals. They were um, a group of left wing intellectuals from New York City who back in the mid 20th century had been on the far left. Irving Kristol was a former Trotskyite. Norman Podhorens had, had been associated with the new left in its early phase, uh, say in the early 1960s, before it became uh, a much larger movement uh, later on in that decade. And in the 70s, the neocons and the circle around them, that is Podhorens, Crystal, um, their friends and associates and fellow intellectuals and journalists and people writing for their various magazines collectively started moving to the right. And they started bringing with them a lot of people that had been associated with an organization called Social Democrats USA. The Social Democrats USA was a, um, so a democratic socialist organization that had right wing anti-Soviet foreign policy views. I mean, they were Cold War hawks. Although they were on domestic policy, they were on the left. And the reasons for this are complicated, but the, the official story is that the neocons uh, started moving rightward and moving away from the left because they thought that the left was too soft on communism because they, they were in favor of democratic socialism, not, not the Stalinist or Maoist kind. They also disdained the new left and the counterculture. They thought it was too oriented towards drugs and free love and that kind of stuff. You know, these were older people by this time period. They, these were not young people, not kids. Also, they were very disdainful of the black power movement, uh, I think in large part because there was a, a current of anti-Semitism in the black power movement. And another issue they had with the with the new left is that the new left tended to have a favorable view of the Palestinians. Uh, and most of the neocons, certainly the first generation neocons, were about 99% Jewish and very pro-Israel. So for this reason, you started to see some of these uh, New York intellectuals moving rightward in the 70s and, and forming uh, alliances with right-wing anti-communists, with pro-Israel elements on the right, like the evangelical Christians. They started in their journals and, and magazines giving uh, a platform for critics of the great society saying, well, look, you know, maybe we've taken the welfare state too far. Maybe we've gotten a little too soft on crime. You know, they would promote figures like James Q. Wilson and uh, Charles Murray and some of those characters who, who aren't really neocons, but were conservative leaning figures that were neocon friendly. 
And then over time, we've seen a subsequent generation of neocons emerge. Uh, Bill Crystal, who is on MSNBC now nowadays quite a bit as an anti-Trump commentator, he is the son of, of Irving Crystal. John Podhoritz, he's a columnist. Um, I, he is published, I think, in probably the New York Post and publications like that. Uh, he's the son of Norman Podhoritz. Elliot Abrams, who has been in a number of Republican administrations going all the way back to the Reagan era, he's the son-in-law of Norman Podhoritz. Uh, Matthew Cottonetti, who is now a, a leading conservative pundit, he is the son-in-law of Bill Kristol. So this is a very uh, family, you know, this, this the neocons are a collection of family dynasties. Uh, another family is the Kagans, uh, the Kagan family. The most well-known person associated with that is Victoria Newland, who's married to one of the Kagan brothers uh, who were leading neocon scholars. And, and they're Democrats. The Kagans are, because the neocons transcend the Democrat-Republican divide. Uh, you have some neocons that are Democrats and some that are Republicans. Uh, and I think that's intentional. You know, they like to work both angles. In fact, back in the uh, Paul Gottfried, uh, who if you don't know who he is, he was he's a leading conservative, paleoconservative scholar. Paul Gottfried told me once that he has a, a copy or, or either he has a copy or someone showed him a copy of a letter from Daniel Bell to Irving Kristol back during the 1972 presidential election, where one of them said they were going to support the Democrats. The other one said they were going to support the Republicans. And that way, neocons would have a foot in the door with either kind of administration. So that's how the neocons have always operated since the first generation of neocons. It's always about working whatever angle they can and working as many angles as they can simultaneously. So I guess that's the narrow definition of a neocon, somebody that comes out of this section of the left back in the in the late 60s and early 70s, the leftists, former Trotskyites, former socialists, former social democrats who move rightward over the some of the issues I just described. That's the narrowest definition of a neocon. Neocons also have quite a few figures that I would call neocon adjacents. And these are folks who have basically the same views as the neocons, even though they don't really originate from the neocon movement itself. One obvious example is John Bolton. Uh, John Bolton, who was Trump's national security advisor until he got fired. He was the uh, UN ambassador uh, back during the Bush era. He's now on the MSNBC quite a lot as an anti-Trump commentator as well. Uh, he's known for being a super hawk in foreign policy. Like Trump once joked that if uh, John Bolton had his way, we'd be fighting the whole world at once. This is the kind of thing that Bolton is famous for. Now, Bolton has basically the same kind of outlook as the neocons on international relations, but he doesn't have his roots in that. He has his roots in the hawkish kind of Goldwater, right-wing, anti-Soviet uh, movement that came out of the 60s and 70s, uh, which is the same uh, milieu that figures like the Cheney family, Dick Cheney, the former vice president, his daughter, Liz, um, Donald, the late Donald Rumsfeld, the former secretary of defense. Those guys, those people came out of that that era, that era, uh, that milieu, what I, the, uh, the, the, the hawkish anti-Soviet uh, Goldwater type of conservatism. And eventually what happened during the George W. Bush era is that you had the neocons who had their roots in the left and had been infiltrating the right for a while. They'd worked their way into the Reagan administration, although they also played ball with the Clinton administration in certain ways as well. Uh, you had those converging with this kind of hawkish right, this all super hawks, as I call them, like Bolton, like Cheney, like the late Donald Rumsfeld. And then they kind of converged. And these were the people that were running the George W. Bush administration, particularly the foreign policy wing. Uh, and then you've got others that are attached to this. I mean, you've got people in the wider uh, conservatism, Inc., as it's sometimes called, or movement conservatism, which is, you know, the think tank apparatus in D.C. that in which neocons are heav heavily embedded, along with some of these super hawks, along with other other figures as well, uh, some of whom are neoliberals and, and, and things like that, or some of them are supply side economists. But I mean, without you know, I could go on much further. But as a as a general framework, when we talk about neocons, that's what we're talking about.
So the point you raised about, I believe, Daniel Bell is rather intriguing because I do remember from one of our previous conversations off air, I believe, that you said something to the effect that neocons tend to insinuate themselves into power by taking on like fake dovish positions or at least taking on a position contrary to the more hawkish party. Now, could you expand on this concept and show additional examples of that strategy in action? Well, it's not so much that they are putting on a fake dovish position as much as they try to work different angles at the same time uh, for the, towards the same ends. And it could be any number of things. Back in 1972, obviously, you had one of them supporting Nixon, the other one supporting McGovern. So clearly, McGovern had a more dovish position. But more common with the neocons is that they tend to represent the hawkish faction of a lot of different tendencies. For instance, you have some neocons that, as I said earlier, that are Democrats, like the Kagan family, Robert Kagan, Frederick Kagan, their father, I can't remember what his first name was, Bob Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland, Fred Kagan's wife, again, I can't remember her, her name, but uh, they are all leading neocon scholars and they have this very aggressive, hawkish uh, foreign policy outlook. You know, on most other things, they're basically just ordinary liberals. You, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them from a, a centrist liberal Democrat on, on other issues, the Kagans. Then you have other neocons that are gung-ho Republicans, they, or at least they pretend to be publicly. Uh, the Puthoritz people, for example, have been outspokenly pro-Reagan, pro-George W. Bush. Uh, they've at least pretended to be pro-Trump. The Crystals, on the other hand, have gone in the other direction. The, the Crystals embedded themselves in the Reagan and George W. Bush, I mean, the George H.W. Bush and then George W. Bush administrations. And then they started turning against the, the Republicans when it, uh, the party became Trumpized. But the neocon network tends to work multiple angles at the same time. Like what I see them doing right now is in response to Trumpism, since Trump has become a thing in the last, you know, what, seven years now, you have some neocons that have been the leadership of the anti-Trump Republicans, the never Trumpers. Some of them have gone in that direction. Like the, the Lincoln Project is full of these people, is full of neocons. You also have some neocons that have gone back over to the Democrats. And these are the ones that make the rounds on MSNBC about what an awful guy Trump is. Bill Kristol is one. John Bolton has now gone in that direction. Another one is George Will. He's a longtime associate of the Crystal family. You also have some neocons that have tried to embed themselves in Trumpism and kind of infiltrate Trumpism. The Podhoretz clan has, has, has done that. For example, Elliot Abrams worked his way into a position of uh, becoming Trump's envoy to Iran. And Iran is a big issue for the neocons. What the neocons want is a preemptive war of regime change in Iran because they view Iran as Israel's primary competitor in the Middle East. Uh, that's the holy grail for the neocons, is a regime change war with Iran. Bolton, for a time, infiltrated the Trump camp, obviously. It also seems to me that this national conservatism thing, this is a controversial thesis, but it, my perspective on this national conservatism thing that's happening, and they just had their conference over this past weekend, is that the national conservatism seems to me to be an effort by neocons, neocon allies, neocon adjacents to create a kind of fake populist right. That is a populist right that's going to be basically Trumpism without Trump or MAGAism without MAGA. And it's, instead, it's just going to function as a type of subsidiary to conservatism incorporated. Conservatism incorporated is a term that a lot of conservatives use to describe the Republican establishment. That is, you have these think tanks and foundations and the Republican Party itself and media outlets. For these people, conservatism, quote unquote, is a business, uh, conservatism incorporated. And it seems that much of national conservatism is an effort to create a type of populist right that's adjacent 
to the uh, conservatism incorporated and thereby drawing attention away from Trump and his movement or drawing attention away from MAGA and sort of in in a way co-opting those tendencies, co-opting these populist right tendencies. Like looking over the people who spoke at this conservatism Inc. conference, you know, you have Josh Howley, the senator. He's on the right wing of conservatism Inc., I guess. DeSantis, he's being groomed by a lot of the Republican donor class as an alternative to Trump. Rubio, at one point, was a darling of the neocons. Bill Kristol originally supported him for the presidency back in the 2015-2016. Peter Thiel is one of the big bankrollers of this national conservatism project. He seems to be somebody that's trying to have his um, hands in, in all the different pots at the same time. He, he wants to be a player. You know, there's an, as far as other people, I, I see that there's a, a lot of the, of the people that's that were present at this conference. They represent a fairly wide range of people on the U.S. right. There's Rod Dreher from American Conservatism. They've gone in a more neoconish direction over time. The Christopher DeMuth, he's from the Wall Street Journal, you know, and, and then it looks like there's a lot of other people that they have that they're, you know, they're trying to bring as wide a cross section of the right into this neocon uh, or conservatism ink and con- controlled umbrella, you know, that's going to be, a, a, I think they're trying to co-opt a lot of this or they're trying to deflect attention from other things. Like Yoram Hazani, for example, a friend of mine recently mentioned that it's interesting that Yoram Hazani is supposed to be such a big player in conservatism now. He just kind of came out of nowhere. But what he actually is, is a um, protege of Irving Crystal. Uh, by his own admission. So he's a full-fledged neocon. Yeah, this is somebody who was groomed to be a leader by the leading neocons. You know, and, and yeah. if you go over the list of all the people that were at this conference, it seems like that's the part. All of these folks just seem like someone who, you know, are either neocon, essentially neocon puppets. Maybe that's a, a overly simplistic way to put it. They're either neocon puppets or they represent tendencies that the neocons and the conservatism Inc. and their allies are trying to co-opt. Like I see they have Yomni Park there. She's the, the young woman, Korean woman, that's a defector from North Korea. She's popular in the model of the more center-right online spaces like the Tim Pool circle and, and the, the Prager U circle, I think, and the, and the Blair White and and Joe Rogan. You know, I, I don't know if Joe Rogan's on the right, but yeah, she's she's popular in those circles. So, yeah, it looks like that they're trying to create this uh, neocon front movement that's essentially trying to co-opt the populist right or the nationalist right or America first. And they're trying to bypass the Trump movement and and deflect attention away from it, I think, and create an alternative to it that they control. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. Now, I want to go back to some of these like factions because when it comes to foreign policy interventionism, there's no monolithic school of thought because you obviously have like neoconservatism, the superhawks you mentioned, and the neocon adjacent movement. And then you've got a another like some other subsects that are, are more centrist and even liberal. What are like some of the other prominent foreign policy interventionist factions and how do they differ from your typical neocon? Well, I'd say that the majority of the political establishment and the media class and everyone who has influence is an interventionist to some degree. You know, so-called non-interventionist or isolationist or whatever tend to be rather marginalized uh, for the most part. Uh, maybe there's a couple of exceptions, but um, for the most part, I'd say that's the case. But the neocons are known for being uh, ag- aggressively hawkish, you know, to the point of, of being rather extreme. And then they have others that are aligned with them. Another point of view now that is very common among the spectrum of, say, centrist liberals over to progressive liberals and the further left even is this thing that uh, you, you might call humanitarian hawks. 
A one example of that is a woman who is also in the Bush foreign policy apparatus named Samantha Power. And she was the ambassador to the United Nations back when Barack Obama was the president. She's also married to a guy named Cass Sunstein. Um, Cass Sunstein is a an academic. He's sort of a public intellectual. He's become something of a pop culture intellectual. He's somewhat popular among the you know more center left progressives, centrist to center left progressives. He's not far left. You know he's. He's not anything approaching a Marxist or something like that, but but he's he's within the standard liberal progressive liberal internationalist framework when it comes to foreign policy. And his and his wife Samantha Power is known for being an aggressive champion of what is sometimes called humanitarian interventionism, and that's something that turns out often to not be so humanitarian. An example is the war in Libya in 2011. Uh, in 2011, it was these people in the Obama administration who largely persuaded President Obama to greenlight the war in Libya uh, in collusion with NATO. Certainly Hillary Clinton, the secretary of state at the time, was big on this. And of course, that war turned out to be a disaster. I mean, yes, Gaddafi was put out of power, but what came along was even worse. I mean, now you have terrorist groups that have created a haven for themselves in Libya, and you you have open-air slave markets. I mean, it's like something out of the Middle Ages. But Samantha Power promotes this idea, this idea of humanitarian, uh, and I, I would call it humanitarian imperialism, but it's the idea where we're going to go around the world and be intervening in all these conflicts, ostensibly to prevent genocides or massacres, you know, I mean, like whether in Darfur or Rwanda and things like that. Um, and this point of view represents the, the majority of the elite in the United States generally. I mean, generally speaking, when it comes to foreign policy, we could say the majority of the American power elite, a supermajority, are either neocons or neocon adjacents or what's called a liberal internationalist, which is basically a more moderate version of some of the same ideas neocons have. They're bigger on multilateralism. They're bigger on working through international institutions like the UN and, and NATO allies and things like that, whereas neocons don't, don't trust any of that. They're big on American unilateralism. But the objectives are typically the same. And then you also have these humanitarian hawks like uh, Samantha Power, and increasingly, it seems that the entirety of the Democratic Party is going in this direction. For a long time after the Vietnam War, several decades, you had Democrats that were kind of within the old McGovernite 1960s and 70s era, anti-Vietnam War era. I guess you could say they were kind of like neo-isolationist or at least non-interventionist. You know, they were skeptical of foreign military interventions because they were like, yeah, we remember what happened in Vietnam. You know, we don't want to repeat of that. But it seems like that wing of the Democratic Party has been almost totally eradicated and that the Democrats today are really within the Wilsonian tradition. President Woodrow Wilson is really the guy who created the foreign policy paradigm that the Democrats have held to for over 100 years which is, uh, you know, the idea of war to make the world safe for democracy, wars to end all wars, you know, humanitarian warfare and things like that. And that's still basically the paradigm that most Democrats hold to. Uh, and the neocons are the same thing, only a more extreme, aggressive, more fanatical version of the same idea. And it looks like the people in Congress now, for example, the Democrats, are, you know, even the most liberal ones seem to be moving in that kind of direction. Like one thing I thought was really interesting was the vote that was taken uh, about uh, sending aid to Ukraine, uh, the, the big uh, package that was sent to Ukraine a while back. No Democrat in Congress voted against it. Uh, not AOC, not Ilan Omar, not Rashida Tlaib, none of these people. Uh, that was true when they took the vote on whether or not to admit Finland and Sweden to NATO. Once again, not a single Democrat 
voted against that as well. I mean, you had a small handful of Republicans, usually the more MAGA-ish Republicans like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or uh, the more libertarian Republicans like uh, uh, Tom Massey or Rand Paul, I think, was kind of you know in the, on the fence on this. But um, yeah, so it looks like that's really where the full range of, of mainstream opinion is now. I mean, the, you know, the Democrats, uh, certainly the Republican Party establishment, so obviously the national security apparatus, uh, obviously the, the leftover Bush-Cheney people, uh, most of the media, you know, all, all of that stuff is uh, essentially neoconized at this point, or at least, you know, in a watered down way. Yeah, it's actually pretty frightening when you think about it that like the Democratic Party is monolithically interventionist in a way that you never saw it before because there's always been like you you could go back to like the Grover Cleveland era. There's always been at least some tendency of non-interventionism within the Democratic Party. But now it's like completely purged of it. The Republican Party is a bit more nuanced because you can definitely go back to the progressive era to see like some non-interventionist types. Like I think like a Bob LaFollette is a good example. And then the obvious people like Taft and even to a lesser extent, Coolidge and Harding were much less hawkish. But yeah, that stuff is pretty nuts how the politics is realigned in that respect. I want to go to some specific decades. When would you say that the neocons began hitting the pavement in earnest with regards to their capture of several institutions? Well, I think that started in the 80s. You know, the neocons have their roots going back to, I guess, the late 60s. In the 70s, they coalesced as an identifiable movement. They started working the Republican Party angle during that time. And then in the early 80s, they started working their way into the administration of President Ronald Reagan. There was a very important incident that relates to this uh, in in 1981 when Reagan first took office. I actually wrote uh, an essay about this. It's it's in one of Paul Godfrey's compilations. Like there's a compilation called uh, Conservatism, a Vanishing Tradition that Paul Godfrey put together. It's a collection of essays on different topics by different writers. I have a contribution to that that's called The Significance of the M.E. Bradford Affair. And that's about how the neocons got a foot in the door to the Reagan administration. What happened was there was a controversy over who was going to take control of the NEH. The NEH is a federal agency that's called the National Endowment for the Humanities. So they basically fund humanities projects related to education and public scholarship and that kind of thing, similar to the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. And the more traditional conservatives wanted uh, a guy named Mel Bradford, M.E. Bradford, Melvin E. Bradford, to take this position as head of the NEH. Uh, He was a a former uh, literature professor at uh, I think it was the University of Austin. I can't remember. And it's been a while since I was working on this. Somewhere in Texas, he was a professor of classic literature. And he was a paleoconservative. He was what what today be be called a paleoconservative. And he originally was nominated for this position by the Reagan administration uh, with the support of a lot of leading conservatives. But the neoconservatives threw a fuss about Bradford's nomination, uh, in particular, the Crystals, the Podhoritzes, George Will, uh, you know, the, the fact, as well as a guy named Bill Simon. Bill Simon was a businessman who was a, a benefactor of the neocons. He put a lot of money into their movement, basically. Uh, these folks did not want Mel Bradford to hold this position. And the reason why was they thought he was a racist and a reactionary neo-Confederate because he had supported George Wallace for the presidency back when uh, Wallace ran 
Uh, I think Rollis ran twice in 68 and 72, at least in the primaries. Well, he, no, he ran in the general as a third party candidate in 68. But Mel Bradford was fairly similar to a guy kind of like, I guess, kind of like Pat Buchanan or somebody who's a fairly stereotypical paleocon today. And the neocons really objected to this. They, they went out of their way to block Mel Bradford's appointment. Um, you know, there were there were some hit pieces on Mel Bradford, one by George Will in the Washington Post, I guess it was, one of the Washington papers, and, and also one by by Eric Foner. Eric Foner was commissioned to to attack uh, Mel Bradford. Eric Foner is a Marxist academic, but um, instead, the person that replaced Mel Bradford was this guy named William Bennett. He's not that well-known anymore, but at one point in the 80s and 90s, he was a huge celebrity in conservative circles, in movement conservative circles. In fact, he was even touted as a potential uh, presidential candidate at one time. But Bennett was the head of the NEH instead of Bradford. Then he became the Secretary of Education. Then he became the first drugs are we ever had. This was back when Reagan's uh, war on drugs was heating up. Uh, now, during this, this was interesting because during this time, Bennett was still a Democrat. He was actually a Democrat when he received all of these different appointments by the Reagan administration. I think sometime in the mid 80s, he formally changed his affiliation to the Republican Party. But Bennett was actually a Democrat. And he was uh, backed strongly by the neocons. They, you know, he was one of their darlings, and they really pushed for him to become the NEH. And then he worked his way into Republican circles. Uh, some years later, he he was involved in a scandal because Bennett had written this book called the Book of Virtues, and he really presented himself as sort of a religious right type of moralizer. You know, the real problem with America is our lack of morals. Uh, although he was, he was a Catholic, he wasn't a conservative evangelical, but uh, but that's how he presented himself, sort of a you know, professional moralist type. And then it was revealed that he was actually a compulsive gambler and he had spent millions of dollars in casinos and, you know, Vegas and Atlantic City. And, huh. and a lot of- Many such cases. Yeah, well, a lot of you know, a lot of people said, well, maybe his morals really aren't up to speed, so maybe he shouldn't be lecturing everybody else on their morals. But uh, and he was, and that that was pretty much the end of him. He's still around. He still has a one. You know, he's still a minor league talk radio personality nowadays. But that, in a, in a nutshell, is is the background to how the neocons first started working their way into the Reagan administration. Elliot Abrams, the son-in-law of uh, Norman Podhoritz and Mitch Dector that I mentioned earlier, he was involved in the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, he was the, his title was something like a inter- Undersecretary for Latin American Relations or something like that during during the 80s when the Contra War was going on in Nicaragua and the Civil Civil War in El Salvador and so forth. Uh, He's he's a foreign policy guy. In fact, Abrams was originally charged with some kind of crime in the Iran-Contra affair. I don't think a lot came of it. I think they put him on probation or maybe he beat the charges or something. But... um, the neocons started embedding themselves in conservatism, Inc., and, and, and the, the Republican Party and all of that in the Reagan administration. And then they were even more important in the Bush administration. Um, Bill Crystal, uh, Irving Crystal's son, was the chief of staff to Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle, he's not well remembered now either, but he was the vice president under George H.W. Bush. So uh, and Bill Crystal was his staff, uh, chief of staff. And then after that, you know, by this time, we're starting to get into the era of cable news and all that. And and then eventually, uh, you know, some of these neocons, they become leading commentators on Fox and and some of the early uh, big cable news channels and that kind of thing. And then uh, even during the Clinton administration, you had uh, neocons trying to influence the Clinton administration to act more aggressively. Uh, during that time, they created this thing called the Project for a New American Century. 
And basically what this project was about was waging regime change wars. In fact, they identified a long list of countries they essentially wanted to attack and have a war of regime change. And they uh, it issued uh, a letter to President Clinton asking him to implement this policy, essentially, uh, including a war with Iraq and, and all of that. And then when George W. Bush came into office and September 11th happened, the neocons were in a position where they could actually make this happen because you had Paul Wolfowitz, who was a leading neocon, always had been since the 70s. You had him as an assistant secretary of defense. You had Dick Cheney as vice president. You had Donald Rumsfeld as secretary of defense. Now, they weren't neocons, but they had been allied with the neocons since the 70s. Uh, so all of these folks were in a, just happened to be in the right place at the right time where the neocons and neocon adjacents, where they could essentially start implementing their agenda. And 9-11 gave them a pretext for doing so. And they came up with a plan to start attacking all these countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, Syria, Libya. That, you know, that, was, that was their foreign policy objective, much of which they actually carried out. I want to go back to the 90s as well, because the trend at that time from my reading of foreign policy history was this Clinton-style neoliberal slash humanitarian interventionism that you saw in places ranging from the Balkans all the way to Haiti. And you have to believe that neocons were still making moves behind the scenes. You mentioned PNAC. Outside of that, what were some other projects that they were involved in during that period? Well, I'm not sure about all the organizations. They've always had a lot of networks of you know organizations that come and go. Uh, I do know that during the Clinton era, Clinton actually started moving U.S. foreign policy towards a more neocon light type of perspective, I guess you could say, like in in the previous administration of George H.W. Bush, while he was George H.W. Bush was certainly an internationalist. He was certainly an interventionist. He was a Rockefeller Republican, a lifelong Rockefeller Republican. But within that milieu, you also had a realist tradition that was, yes, it was internationalist and interventionist, but within a kind of a realist framework, uh, you know, the old school George Kennan type of framework, or, well, more specifically, the, the Henry Kissinger's Vigny Brzezinski type of framework. You know, George H.W. Bush came out of that tradition, Brent Scowcroft, James Baker III, some of, some of the figures that had been well known in the George H.W. Uh, Bush administration, some of whom were leftovers from the Reagan administration. Some of them went all the way back to the Nixon and you know era and had been Rockefeller Republicans back in the 60s and 70s. And the realist tradition is more Machiavellian in the sense that it sees uh, international relations as basically a brawl between great powers. And it's all about maintaining a balance of power and things like that. And And, and it certainly is not opposed to aggression or uh, interventionism or anything like that, but th there's an element of it that says, you know, we should at least be able to win <laughs> if we do something like that, you know, yeah. uh, at least hope we win, you know, it's, you know, the more Kissinger viewpoint, you know, Kissinger sort of epitomizes this, or, or Zbigniew Brzezinski. Well, those elements were starting to fade in influence in the 90s, and you're starting to get this uh, neoliberal certainly this neoliberal economic paradigm uh, that had started in the 80s and then it accelerated in the, in the 90s. But you were also starting to see the foreign policy framework move away from realism, this kind of Rockefeller Republican realism, towards a kind of neo-Wilsonian outlook, which is basically just neocons light. Like you mentioned, you know, the, 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 in the Clinton administration, you had the humanitarian hogs and the you know, um, liberal internationalists, what all they were, were basically just neocons light. They didn't come right out and say, well, we're just going to go invade countries all over the place. You know, but they had a, a similar outlook. And, and, and it's still these people that dominate the foreign policy, I think, of the Bush administration. I mean, I mean, of the Biden administration. 
Uh, if you look at the what the Biden administration has done, if you look at the people that are the leading players and it like Anthony Blinken, for example, the secretary of state, he comes out of this this tradition, you know, this kind of Madeleine Albright, you know, you know, hawkish liberal internationalism type of uh, tradition. Um, you know, he, Victoria Newland, uh, she's a neocon, Samantha Power, a humanitarian hawk or whatever. So these were the, these, this kind of stuff started dominating Democratic foreign policy circles in the 90s and has continued to do so ever since. And now we're seeing the full fruition of it. One of the ironies of the Bush administration was how on the campaign trail, he took somewhat of a humble foreign policy standpoint. And even people like Condoleezza Rice, uh, contrary to popular belief, had somewhat of a realist streak to her during the 90s, where she criticized several interventions in Haiti and the Balkans, though she was more focused, as you mentioned before, on like great power competition with the likes of like Russia and China. However, all of that capsized once uh, Bush took office and obviously 9-11 changed the whole game. I imagine that you were watching politics pretty religiously at that time. When did you realize that Bush's otherwise restrained foreign policy rhetoric was just like a total ruse and that the neocon fix was in? Well, I knew that when he was running for president because he, first of all, came from the Bush family. I mean, you know, they they are Rockefeller Republicans uh, and have been their whole you know, throughout their entire history. Secondly, he had Dick Cheney, uh, who had uh, been a leading hawk in the Reagan and and George H.W. Bush administration as his running mate. Also, he selected Donald Rumsfeld as his Secretary of State, and and State uh, and uh, Rumsfeld had had a relationship with the neocons going back to the seventies, including people like Bud Horowitz and and Mitch Dechter and, and figures like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I knew when George W. Bush was elected that it was going to be a neocon administration. And I remember hearing him say that he was going to uh, not be that he was not a nation builder. You know, this is when he was running for president. He was saying he was not a nation builder and he wanted to have a more humble foreign policy. And I remember thinking this is a, well, this is just a lot of bull. You know, he, he's going to be uh, an aggressive, hawkish internationalist. And he was. And of course, September 11th created the perfect pretext for that. Yeah. And I I do see somewhat of a repeat with that with regards to the the national conservatives, too, because I think in a hypothetical situation where DeSantis gets the Republican nomination, he'll make similar platitudes about how he's against like nation building and all that jazz. Well, yeah, I, I see that going on in those circles. Um, here, here's the thing about that. You know, looking over this National Conservatism Conference, I see that they had four separate politicians that actually spoke there. That is four sitting elected office holders, uh, at least federal politicians. Maybe they had some local ones as well. But and they were those were sent uh, DeSantis, Howley, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. All right, Marco Rubio is a neocon. Uh, he was a favorite of the crystal uh, wing of the neocons uh, back during the 2015 primaries. That's who uh, Bill Crystal initially endorsed. DeSantis strikes me as someone who is essentially a neocon, although he, he works the populist right angle strategically. But one of the things that's most telling about Ron DeSantis is that he put out a tweet at one point saying that his objective was to be the most pro-Israel governor ever. Now, what does being pro-Israel have to do with governing a domestic American? You know, I mean, I mean, governors govern the states. They don't run foreign policy. So here you have a governor saying, I want to be the most pro-Israel governor ever, as if that has anything to do with his job as governor of Florida. And clearly, he's essentially brown-nosing people. that He knows that he needs to brown-nose if he wants to uh, have a chance of replacing Trump as the uh, next Republican nominee. Uh, so it's clear that he knows who he needs to work with if he wants to 
uh, achieve the presidency or, or, you know, advance further professionally. So I would expect DeSantis to essentially be a puppet of these people. I would not have any faith at all in DeSantis uh, advocating for a more uh, restrained or less interventionist foreign policy whatsoever. I think he would just be a standard neocon or certainly a standard conservatism Inc. type of figure. I've picked up an interesting commonality among neocons. They have this propensity of having connections or at least being inspired by the late political philosopher Leo Strauss. Why do you think neocons tend to gravitate to Strauss's work? That's complicated because Strauss himself is a complicated figure and people who read him and try to interpret him have trouble understanding him. But the way I interpret Strauss based on my reading of him and then checking out the work of people who have tried to do interpretive work on Strauss and comparing their various viewpoints, Strauss strikes me as someone who was essentially a liberal in his politics. And when I say liberal, I mean liberal in the broad sense. But he was also something of an elitist in the sense that, in the sense that he thinks that the, the common people need to be kept under control for their own good. You know, we can't let the peasants out of too far out of the house, so to speak. And he seems to have believed that the way you do that is basically with fake conservatism. That is, you know, you try to appeal to the traditions and religion and culture of the of you know common people, but it's a it's a somewhat cynical ruse for essentially achieving and maintaining power. You know, he seemed to have had a very Machiavellian view of power relationships actually work politically. Um, you know, he, he was big on Plato's idea of the noble lie. And he seemed to think that things like traditional culture, you know, patriotism, religion, things like that are, are noble lies. Don't really have any substance in and of themselves, but you need these things to, to keep the people in line. We have to understand Strauss's work in light of his life experience. Strauss was a German Jewish intellectual who lived in Weimar in the 1920s. The Weimar Republic, uh, which was the German uh, government in between the two world wars after the Kaiser Wilhelm, but before the Third Reich. And that was the really the first time in history that Germany had experimented with a full democratic republic. And it was a very inefficient regime. Um, you know, they had inflation that was runaway. I mean, I mean, genuinely runaway inflation where money was literally worth nothing. You had violence going on in the street between rival extremist factions, the, the you know, Hitler's movement and, and the communists and others. And when the Nazi party started coming to power as a German Jew, Leo Strauss fled Germany and took refuge in America. And I think that what the lesson that he took from Weimar was that democracy doesn't work or that, you know, republicanism doesn't work and that what you really need is more of an, uh, an elite, like, say, what they had in the Second Reich in Germany, uh, you know, the, the traditional Bismarckian system that Kaiser Wilhelm presided over during the First World War. You really need something like that, more something that's essentially almost like a monarchy but a, a system of rule by elites who rule for, for the common good in the name of, you know, through, through the use of Machiavellian principles. But then they use these quasi-conservative ideas to, you know, keep the people behind them and things like that. You know, I think that's kind of what, I guess a good way of putting it would be conservatism is a tool that you use for liberal ends. And I think that that thinking, uh, that aspect of Leo Strauss's thinking has, has been a big part of what's informed the neocons. We have to consider also that uh, because so many of the leading neocons are, are Jewish people, um, ethnic Jews, anti-Semitism is a real fear with, with the neocons. That's why they hate populism so much. They, they hate populism because they identify it with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and things like that, and, and with and with fascism and, and all these other um, ideas. 
they hate populism and their Straussian influences are perfectly compatible with that because the last thing Strauss would have been in favor of was populism. Uh, he, he was, you know, he was, he, I guess you could say he was a classical liberal, but one that favored a kind of, you know, rule by el- elites that safeguard the system from the, from the rabble. And that's kind of the neocon perspective as well. In the Trump era, obviously, neocons took somewhat of a blow after Trump was elected in 2016, but obviously they also were not fully knocked out. How did neocons attempt to rehabilitate themselves throughout the Trump administration? Well, through the methods I was describing earlier, uh, they've essentially waged a multi-front war. They really do fear Trump, I think, as a type of, you know, they think that he's a fascist or he's unleashing the forces of fascism. You know, know, they they greatly dislike populism for the reasons that I've just explained. And in essence, they have a lot in common with the left on that. Um, You know, they and the left are, are to a large degree on the same page with this. So they have... For, the first, they formed the anti-Trump tendency within the Republican Party, the Never Trumpers, and all the stuff that's come out of that, like the Lincoln Project and groups like that. Some of them have gone back over to the Democrats and and become the you know, the anti-Trump Republicans who are celebrities now within neo within liberal circles. Uh, you can see these people on MSNBC and CNN all the time: George Will, Bill Crystal, John Bolton. Some of them have tried to get into Trumpism and co-opt it for their own ends. The the Podhoretz clan has certainly tried to do that. Others have sort of hitched their wagons to Trumpism as a more largely for opportunistic reasons. The Prager University people seem to be doing that. The, the, The front page magazine, a lot of them seem to be doing that. You also see that there's an effort now by the Straussians, like the Claremont Institute people, and they they formed an alliance with Peter Thiel and some of these uh, uh, neo-reactionary types, like these Kurdish Yarvin-influenced people. They've created this project, this national conservatism project that seems to me to be, you know, my, my interpretation of it is that national conservatism is simply an effort to create a neocon front project that is going to have the effect of distracting Trumpist from Trump himself and sort of pulling his movement away from him towards a tendency that the traditional Republican elites and the neocons and so forth can control more easily. And and at the same time, I think they really want to keep the populist right sidelined. Even people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Boebert and, and Paul Goser and people like that, I, I think the neocons are willing to tolerate people like that on the margins as long as they continue to vote for aid to Israel and stuff like that. You know, that's really the litmus test with a lot of the neocons. Where do they stand on Israel? They did get rid of Madison Carthorn, and I think that that's because he was a little too loose-lipped uh, in certain ways. But that's essentially the neocon strategy in relation to the populist right. They want to try to co-opt it, deflect tension, attention away from Trump himself, make it into sort of a branch office of conservatism, Inc., where it can be managed and subsequently sidelined and marginalized. Um, you see the Democrats doing this with the progressive wing of their party. Um, they did that with Bernie Sanders. When Bernie Sanders started doing well in the primaries, and he he won, I think he won the the Nevada primary, when South Carolina was coming up, all of a sudden the Democrats pulled back all their in-house candidates like Buttigieg and people like that, except for Biden. And then they left Elizabeth Warren in as a spoiler. And then that kind of had the the effect of uh, throwing the primaries to Biden after that. And and within the Democratic Party itself, they they try to keep people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the sidelines. They don't, I mean, the, the, if you hear Fox News tell the story, you would think she was the leader of the of the of the Democrats. But no, she's not. She's on she's more on the margins of the Democratic Party. And certainly the the Democratic Party establishment, they try to keep Sanders on the on the margins as well. Because they, that's not what the, the leadership of the Democratic Party is about. And the Republican leadership, Republican Party establishment, neocons, Republican donor class, all the stuff behind that, they're trying to do the same thing with MAGA and the Trump movement and the populist right. 
In terms of purges, it's kind of a sidebar, but I think it's still relevant. Why do you think that Steve King, for example, got the axe as well? Because he's not what I would call like a non-interventionist, but at the same time, he has a like I had a really strong populist identitarian streak to him. Well, the neocons are basically social liberals. Steve King would have been too too close to being something like a white nationalist to them. They would have considered him to be a, a white nationalist, a crypto fascist. You know, they they would have the same view of Steve King as the left. The neocons are essentially social liberals. On you know, they may play to social conservatives for strategic reasons, and they may think aspects of the social left go too far. But most neocons are not social conservatives. They're essentially liberals. Uh, in fact, they try to do things like rehabilitate, uh, well, from their vantage point, rehabilitate liberal icons as leading conservatives. Like a big one is Martin Luther King. You know, it's, it's common in neocon circles for them to say, well, actually, Martin Luther King was a great conservative figure. You know, which which is patently false. I mean, he was definitely a liberal. He had social democratic leanings, and some of his aides and deputies were communists. I mean, it's uh, I'm not making any value judgments about that. I'm just saying that's the that's the fact. That's how it was. Yeah, and but that's a that's a common thing with the neocons, and and now the neocons with gay marriage. Uh, a lot of the neocons have said, look, you know, we we've just got to accept that gay marriage is the thing and and be done with it. It, it, it is what it is. They're incre- they, in fact, they even have people like uh, formerly Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner on Fox News now as a leading conservative commentator, uh, you know, or a conservative figure. So the, the point being that the, the neocons are not social conservatives. They're, they're social liberals. They do not like social conservatives for the most part. They associate them with Christianity and therefore anti-Semitism. They do not like nationalists. They associate that with xenophobia and racism and anti-Semitism. So the neocons are basically moderate liberals on on most social issues. Before we depart, where do you see neoconservatism going in the future? And do you believe that it will have any credible challengers? Well, the the neocons and, and others with like them are have essentially formed an alliance against Trump. Uh, Glenn Greenwald had an interesting uh, post about this recently where he was talking about this. He was Now, Glenn Greenwald is a liberal. He made a name for himself as a critic of a lot of the Bush-era policies like the Patriot Act and that kind of stuff. He's an attorney who specializes in civil liberties cases and things like that. But Glenn Greenwald points out, I think quite accurately, that what we have today is an alliance between the Democratic Party leadership, the Bush-Cheney Republicans, the neocons, the Republican Party establishment, the donor class and all of that, the majority of the leadership of the national security apparatus, whether it's domestic security like the FBI or DHL or, 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 uh, or DHS rather, and uh, and whether it's the the deep state and internet and, and national security, CIA and NSA and all that stuff, and also the increasingly dominant wings of the business class like Wall Street and Silicon Valley and certainly the media, certainly most of the media, there's an alliance that's formed between all of these sectors that whose primary purpose is to oppose the movement that Trump represents, which is the populist right. I mean, it's not a coincidence that Liz Cheney was the one leading the inquisition against Trump in Congress. You know, I, I would suspect that her father and his associates were probably pu- puppet mastering her when, when that was going on. And that's their goal. I mean, this, these people, you know, this alliance that, that Greenwald was talking about, they're trying to get rid of Trump and his movement, uh, possibly by bringing criminal charges against Trump and, and things like that, perhaps through uh, other legal prosecutions in the fallout from J6 and, and some of this kind of stuff. And of course, they've managed to co-opt the left, you know, the further left uh, by doing this, you know, in the name of anti-fascism, because most of the left, you know, they see Donald Trump as this dire, dire threat to democracy or whatever. So the neocons and their allies are in power. I mean, they're essentially, I mean, even the Biden administration itself is you know, liberal internationalists and, and humanitarian hawks and 
you know, moderate Democrats and corporate Democrats and neocons light. But uh, this entire power elite apparatus has formed this this alliance that's coalesced for the purpose of, of either suppressing or, or repressing or at least marginalizing and sidelining the populist right. And and that's going to be really the basis of, of conflict in American politics in the years ahead, particularly if Trump runs for, for president again, which he probably will, or particularly if, say, criminal charges are, got, are brought against uh, former President Trump. So I don't see them going away. I mean, they're, they're, they're major players. You know, the neocons and their allies are currently major players in everything that's going on. Well, all right. This is was a fantastic conversation, Keith. And let's just close this one out. It's always great pleasure talking with you. And before we depart, where can my audience keep up with your latest work? Uh, if you go to attackthesystem.com, that's the website that I uh, manage, attackthesystem.com. And then from there, you can find links to my social media, like Twitter and Facebook and and me, we, and, and some of that. And you can find information about books that I've written and podcasts I've done in the past and, you know, generic news sources and things like that. All right. To my audience, thank you for tuning in again. And with that, El Nino has spoken. <laughs>